and welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. I am Amanda Bacrossin here with a new face, two new faces, in fact. Uh, you've heard us talk about her before, the wonderful Lara Koffer, who is our associate producer and also on the wine team at Wine Access, longtime listener of the podcast and contributor, and we're super excited to have her as a co-host today. Welcome, Lara. Yeah, super excited to be here. I love both of these wines and, and can't wait to dive in. Yeah, we're going to have some fun talking to a chef today because this is the first episode that kicks off our Michelin series, which is going to be a four-part series in which we talk to four different chefs, four different restaurants, all Michelin-starred from four different cities. And we're going to talk about their respective cuisines, the cities that they live in, some of their favorite foods. And I'm excited to dive in because I'm a fan of all of these restaurants, even the ones that I haven't been to that I'm longing to go to. But I will say that I have been to the one that we're going to be talking about today. So without any further ado, welcome Chef Troy George of Temperus in Chicago. How are you guys doing? Uh, thank you for having me on. Super excited. We love having, uh, well, I, you're not a Chicago native, you're a Boston native, which I made the mistake of uh, maybe pointing out ac- accidentally <laughs> once upon a time when I text AJ and I was like, hey, he's so awesome. We love his Chicago accent. And he was like, he's from Boston. <laughs> it's like, Yeah, they still give me shit for that. <laughs> I'll never live it down. But I will say it was like one of the most epic meals I've ever had. And it's a if you haven't been to the restaurant, it is a smaller restaurant in Chicago. Incredible food. We are going to be talking about how to have an epic meat night with chef. And we've talked about going plant-based before. We've had conversations about steak before. But we're going to be talking to the pro about all things steak, how to cook it, what cuts, what to bear with it. But before we dive into any of that, let's talk a little bit about what has been going on in the world of wine. For those of you who don't know how the scores work in the wine world, these publications essentially request samples most of the time and they taste them blindly. Those some publications do often go to the wineries themselves. In any case, they taste them, they give them scores, then you see them printed, right? For James Molesworth at Wine Spectator, this is the first year that all five of the first gross from Bordeaux have elected to not submit their wines for scoring to Wine Spectator and have instead requested that if they want to taste the wines, they should do so by visiting the property, which of course kind of goes against the ethos of all things that they believe in because they taste them blindly. And you're not supposed to know what the wines are when you're tasting them because that's not objective. What did you think of this article, Laura? What did, was there any like takeaway for you that you were like, oh, that's weird? I think scores are incredibly helpful to consumers. I, I understand the system as it is used um, by retailers, not so much in the restaurants. So I, I respect that world. But an interesting choice for these, these wineries to kind of turn their back on it and say, this is unnecessary for us. And we want to be able to show you our whole story and have you come to the property and control the setting. So it, it's yeah. a, it's kind of this power dynamic, the struggle between between the critics and the producers. That it, Interesting to see how it's going to play out. I don't think it's going to hurt the sales of any of these wines. Yeah. You know, when it comes to these wines finding their way into the hands of, of collectors, I don't think this will have an impact, but it does make a statement. It's super interesting. And I think one of the more uh, fascinating things that you can read if you don't want to read the article is actually James's Instagram post. The comments section is pretty interesting. He's responded to a lot of them. People have their own speculations as to why these wineries decided not to submit, but 
I don't know. I, I don't really know much about the 2020 vintage other than what has been early reported and that it's a little bit, it was like fine, but like slightly inconsistent. So I think to your point, Laura, like I'll be curious to see if this continues into future vintages, if it was vintage related, or if this is just a signal that like scores are not something that wineries are interested in in chasing any longer. Uh, Chef, are you, are you into scores? Do you follow scores at all with wines? No, not really. I kind of, I kind of leave the score until the professionals. <laughs> I've actually never asked you, are you like a big wine drinker? I mean, I like red for sure. Uh, yeah. I could go without white, uh, to be honest. But Oh, I hope we change your mind today. They always tell me my food is very white wine friendly. So they're surprised that I don't drink white wine. Your food is very white wine friendly. And in fact, it's also very sparkling friendly as well. The next one, Laura, I love you and I, I hate you for including this in our roundup today. Buckle up. I will say moving to Napa from New York City, I had my eyes opened to Corkage and all things BYOB. And in fact, I remember sitting down for like one of my first interviews with our GM, Spencer, who's a listener of this podcast. Hi, Spencer. And I remember sitting down with him and he was like, hey, just so you know, and he moved from New York too. He was like, hey, Corkage is like a very real thing out here and people love to bring their wines. It's a very different ballgame. We don't really see it so much in New York City, but in Napa, we, we certainly do and in the state of California. And there was an article from the San Francisco Chronicle that just came out talking about the fact that the corkage fees are on the rise. The $15 corkage fee is now 30. In some places, it's upwards of 100. French Laundry, I think famously, has always had a very high corkage fee. It's now up at $200. I don't know. I mean, Laura, you've got a, you've got a background as a wine director and sommelier at Napa Valley and Bay Area restaurants. I'm sure that you have some opinions on corkage, but it sounds like, you know, this contentious, uncomfortable moment that always seems to occur in restaurants around corkage is not getting any better because the prices are up and people are unhappy. So what are your thoughts? I always felt, and I, it is so different in Napa Valley. I mean, there's there's wine coming out of like every corner. So I, I understand that it just like is part of our life here. I always just felt like we did hospitality first. And if someone brings in a bottle of wine, all you can do is say, this is going to be fantastic and we're happy to serve it. And as far as the fees, I don't understand it being like try, them trying to incentivize people not to bring them in because people are, are kind of just going to do what they're going to do. And I think mm -hmm. it's reasonable to say, you know, charge a little bit to make up for a little bit of a loss of sale, but these exorbitant $200 for a bottle and then $300 for your next bottle just to punish people feels anti-hospitality mm -hmm. in a way to me that like, and then you're just sitting there and, and you've already started off the dinner with an uncomfortable conversation about this fee and making them feel bad about what they brought. And yeah, to me, it was like, look, it's like $30 is reasonable. It's what you would have spent on two glasses of wine. We'll open it. We'll serve it. Enjoy. I get the question all the time. Like, is corkage acceptable? And to me, it's like if the restaurant has a policy and they say, yes, you can bring your own bottle. This is what the corkage fee is. Then what I tell people is like, you respect the corkage, you research it ahead of time. Definitely don't bring a bottle that they already have in the list. And then the other thing that I always say is like, when you can try to buy something from the list, even if it's just a glass or dessert wine, preferably a bottle. But if you can, if you can squeeze two bottles in, that's great. I think the most contentious conversations we would have at the restaurant about corkage was just like, one, obviously the price. And our price was like very fair. It was like $30. The other contentious conversation was like the amount of bottles. And a lot of times what we would see is like people walking in with like cases of wine and we're like, yes, that's not cool. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, <laughs> super wild. That's wild. 
Yeah. But I, I see both sides, right? And I understand like as a chef, you have curated this entire experience from top to bottom, right? Like you have someone at the door that is checking you in to make sure that from the moment you step foot onto the premises, you have an amazing experience. And I think as a chef also, you want to make sure that the wines that are being enjoyed with this meal are also complimentary. So I think in that case, I understand it. I thought that some of the quotes in this article were really interesting. And I do I do think it's worth reading because I think they take both sides of the argument. They showcase it really well which is the emotional side of this. And so this is a quote from Paul Einbund of the Morris, who said, when people bring in wine to these restaurants that really care, that hurts, meaning that really care, meaning like they care about their wine programs. And he said, emotionally, as well as financially. And I do think like, I remember like feeling a little bit, uh, not insulted, but it, it does feel a little like we've taken so much time to like put this list together. And then you bring your own wine. You're like, okay, well, like, I hope you enjoy it. And I want you to have a great hospitality experience. But I mean, even now I get so uncomfortable having this conversation. Well, even with the parents, so much stuff goes into that. It's like they taste the food over and over again. They're tasting the food with the wine. And then if that wine doesn't work, they taste another one. It's like it's like endless time and effort goes into these parents. And it's like then, then it's kind of like a big fuck you. You come in here with your bottle of wine. You're like, no, that's not good enough. I want to drink my stuff. And it's like. Yeah. There's another quote in here from someone that says, it's already getting, it's already expensive to go out. I won't name the name that's quoted in here. Then to get hit over the head with an extravagant corkage fee without any notice, I think is not right. And I think to like, to that point, it's like, all right, yes, the restaurant does have a responsibility to maybe divulge what the corkage fee ahead of time. But also I consider corkage a privilege, not a right. And so to me, it's like, it remains in the guest hands. Like if you want to bring your own wine in, like research what that policy is mm-hmm. uh, ahead of time and like inform yourself. And also like don't assume that corkage is free. Make sure you are informed or ask. It will always be a battle. And it'll always be it a will battle. always be a battle. These wars are waged every night. <laughs> yes. Be respectful. Last but not least, there have been some great videos of this going around right now. The world's best sommelier was named. He is from Latvia. Uh, Raymond Thompson's was named the winner. This was so cool to watch. This is like basically the Olympics of Psalms where people compete from their respective countries. They have to qualify, make it to final rounds. And then I think it's like the top like five end up competing on like the final stage. And it's pretty wild to watch. There's some great videos of the blind tastings going on. There's a great one of the guy who won doing like four white wines in a row. Then they bring some rocks to him. They're like associate the rocks with the wines. It's pretty wild. Have you seen any of this, Laura? I haven't. I've read the articles. I saw who won and I saw an American got pretty far into the into the semifinals. Yeah. But no, I haven't seen any of the videos. I will have to check those out. Exciting times. Congratulations to the world's best sommelier. And then last but not least, this is just a, a crazy thing that happened over the weekend, at Laura, that I'm sure you saw, Troy, that I'm sure you're like, whatever. Uh, it snowed <laughs> in Napa this weekend. Mm-hmm. Did it really? It sure did. Wow. How Mountain got like 12 inches. There were like cars covered with snow. People couldn't get down from Pritchard Hill. It was wild. A little taste of how 10 months of my year is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I came from the East Coast and I was like, surely it's not that bad. <laughs> and then I looked around and the like the parking lot in Sunshine, which is like all these trucks with like six inches of snow sitting on top of them because like nobody has shovels or anything to clean it off with. So that's a good amount of snow. This is a decent amount of snow, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, for a place that like maybe gets a dusting like maybe once a year, like that's a pretty significant amount. And it's still up there. You know, oh, going, yeah, it's, no, it's still there. going up and down the valley. You can see both like the hillsides. Just it's it's gorgeous. It's the best kind as an East Coaster, too. It's the best kind of snow because I don't have to do anything. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> just <true>. admire <laughs> it from just look from up. a distance, from a warm yeah, distance. It's nice when you don't have to shovel your driveway. Oh, yeah. 
this is the moment where I have to ask everyone to like do something for us. Do us a favor, set down your wine, press pause, and like, subscribe, and review this podcast because it's really important for us to uh, to continue doing this, that we get these reviews. They help people to find our show. It's a wonderful way to let us know what you're loving, maybe what you want to see more of. And if you do that, we are likely to read one of your reviews on the show like I'm about to do right now. So this week's review is from Jen Sees You. This is actually a very aptly titled uh, and clever, clever review title, which is Bar Hopping. Amanda and Vanessa, I discovered your podcast while currently studying for the bar exam and I'm loving it. I have intentionally gone dry for my exam, but I cannot wait to hit the bar after the bar and have a glass or a few of wine using some of my newfound knowledge. Cheers to you both and keep up the great work. Jen sees you. I can't thank you enough for that review and best of luck as you're studying for the bar. That's a pretty challenging exam. I've never done it myself, but I hear intense things. If you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and hit that thumbs up button. If you are uh, listening to this, go ahead and do what Jen just did and leave us a review. We are going to jump into all things meat, but if you are not part of the wine club at this point, this is also your cue to sign up for the Wine Access Unfiltered Wine Club. We have a great time curating these wines. We had a really good time this month working with all the chefs and um, the full wine team to come up with some great epic pairings for these. You can find all that information in the description below. And if you are already subscribed, go ahead and grab your wines and we'll see you in one second. All right, we are back. Hopefully you have your wines in the glass. We've actually got two today. And when I asked Laura what I thought the second wine should be for our steak, podcast, she responded, Chardonnay. And I was like, I love where your head's at. You're the perfect person for the job. So I'm going to kick it off to you. Let's talk a little bit about these wines before we dive into all things steak. So we've got two wines. The Wine Club wine is a Rosso de Montalcino from Capana. Um, that's going to be Sangiovese. So Laura, you are all things Italian wine expert. Why don't you take this one? Student. It's always a student, never an expert. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is a 2019 Rosso di Montalcino. So coming from Tuscany, from uh, from Montalcino, which is one of like the most beautiful places. It's you know castle-dotted hillsides and one of those uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And their star grape is Sangiovese, and particularly Sangiovese Grosso, which is a, a clone that they use to create really their two there are two marquee wines, which is Brunello di Montalcino, which is one of the most um, noble wines of Italy, but it does require a lot of time to make it. It requires a ton of time in bottle to age appropriately. So what we have today is the Rosso di Montalcino, which is some people consider the baby Brunello. It is the same grape coming from the same vineyards, uh, but made in a really fresher style. And this is ready to drink within a year of, of it being produced. Whereas Brunello will take you know, five to six years to be released into the market. So this is a, a nice fresher style, but still it's got all of that Sangiovese meat on the bones. It's got that tannin and that acid, and it's got some richness, beautiful aromatics, some earthiness on the nose. And then you really feel that Sangiovese structure. So, Yeah. And I think as we talk about steak, you can't not talk about Tuscany without talking about like Bistecca Florentina, right? Like such a great classic epic carrying a little bit savory. You've got all those herbs on there. And I think these wines really speak to their place. I fell in love with Tuscany last year, about this time last year when I was there for the very first time visiting a few producers, namely Biondi Santi. So kind of like the OG, you know, godfather producer of the region, but had so much fun discovering the Brunellas, all the Brunellas that I hadn't tasted, but also to your point, like these Rosso de Montalcinos just really, really punch about their weight class. 
Let's talk about Chardonnay for a second because this is a wine that we talked about going with steak, but we've actually never like had it on the podcast while we were talking about steak. So you tell me, why did you go? Why was your first instinct Chardonnay? Uh, Well, I will say I am a white wine drinker, probably more than red. I love white wine and I love Chardonnay in all its glorious forms. When I think about food pairing though, I really think about like matching intensity with intensity and and meat can be kind of bigger and richer and have that intense flavor and texture. So I think Chardonnay, particularly something grown in a warmer climate, has all of those things without overpowering a steak and kind of letting you know meat show itself. And then this is just super cleansing, but it matches the richness. It matches that boldness. There's a little bit of that oak that matches that sweet kind of char flavor that you can get on a steak. So I really love big Chardonnay with meat dishes. And I think you cleverly chose this one with an Italian tie-in, yeah? True. So this is um, Antonori's estate here in Napa on Atlas Peak. I'm sure they're covered in snow right now. (laughs) They're a Tuscan family. They've been around since the 1300s, hung out with the Medicis. Very casual. (laughs) Been in the wine business for very long. They're famous properties, you know, Tiadnello, Solaya. But Piero Antonori really fell in love with the Napa Valley and so has an estate here where they produce some beautiful Cabernet as well as Chardonnay. So this is the 2019 Antica Estate Chardonnay. And as you just said, all coming from Alice Peak, not super normal to have Chardonnay coming from like more inland. Most of the Chardonnay from Napa is coming from Carneros. You see a few pockets in Spring Mountain, a little bit in like the Rutherford area, but very little coming from the mountainside. So uh Super exciting to have something that's got elevation. This is between uh, 760 to 2,600 feet in elevation. So it's got some nice nice legs on that. Uh, Soils are volcanic. And this has got a good amount of of oak on it, which I I appreciate. I think when you're talking about pairing with Chardonnay Chardonnay with steak, you do need a little bit of like oak treatment on it to help with the structure of the wine to stand up to your respective steaks. And I think as we jump into the first section of All Things Steak, where we're going to pick Troy's brain on. We're going to start with Wagyu. And I have to say, one of my favorite pairings of all time was when I was working at Press, we were serving Wagyu. And no matter what I tried, no red wine I tried with it, I just couldn't find the right pairing for it. And I was like, you know what, let me try a white one. And I had like a little bit of this like aged Chardonnay from like the 90s. So I, I popped the bottle, I poured it and I was like, this is amazing. This is exactly what this meat needed. It was a white wine, not a red wine, which I found so fascinating. So before we dive in, for those of you who don't know Chef Troy George, I just want to like give you a little roundup so his credibility is fully established because I know that he's great and Laura knows that he's great. And if you want to do a Google search, you'll quickly realize that he's great. But as we mentioned, uh, born and raised in Massachusetts in New New Bedford, you've worked at a few places, you know, the Ritz-Carlton, Ostra. You were also at Grace, which was a three Michelin starred restaurant with Curtis Duffy uh, back when that was open. That was one of my favorite meals of all time. You're at Acadia. And now you're the executive chef at the one Michelin starred Temperus. Let's jump into epic meat night. What determines the pairing? Wagyu. What are your thoughts on Wagyu? Is it worth the price? What are the best preparations? What's your take? Is this something we should leave to the pros? Can you do it at home? Yeah, for sure. You can do it at home. You just can't. I feel like, you know, when a high price tag gets attached to some people get nervous and it's it's just like any other piece of meat. You cook it the same way. And I think once in your life, it's definitely worth the price. You should, you should try it. Cause I mean, for me, it kind of, it ruined steak. <laughs> in a good way or a bad way? 
in a good way. Okay. It's just another level. Once you taste Wagyu and it's like, it's just like a whole nother world. You're like, wow. Uh, and it's one of those things where you don't need a huge piece of steak. Uh, you need like two, three, four ounces maybe. I think when I dined in the restaurant, it was part of the, in the beginning of the meal. It was like one of the canapes. Well, it's tough because you, you get this piece of meat and, you know, it's, it, you only get like 60% yield as far as where it goes in the, in the menu. So you have all this trim and stuff. So you have to find creative ways to use it. So we take the trim, we grind it up, and we make a dumpling out of it and fry it. Uh, so we're not just throwing that stuff away. So you're working with Wagyu. Are you working with American Wagyu or Japanese Wagyu? Japanese. Japanese. What are your thoughts on American Wagyu? Is there is a difference? Yeah. American Wagyu is good, but I definitely like if you want to experience Wagyu, you want to go with the you want to go with the Japanese stuff. Right now, we've used uh, the Australian stuff for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think the Australian stuff tastes a little bit better, but like it doesn't have that crazy unctuousness that the Japanese stuff has. Mm-hmm. But it's it's also not as rich, so you could actually eat a whole ten ounce steak of of the Australian stuff and then you know not ruin your day the next day. <laughs> Maybe not have an immediate heart attack after. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's let's say like I you know this is not something you're going to go to the store and, and buy, right? Like you've got to source it from like a good purveyor. In fact, I've I've gotten some from a couple great purveyors. I'll list some in the um, description. But uh, I go, I grab like eight ounces of wagyu. I get it home. It's fresh. What do I do? Normally, you'd let it come up to room temp, but, but with, with A5, uh, it's like so, so fatty. Once it comes up to room temp, it's like it's literally melting away on you. Okay. I would let it temper a little bit, not as long as you normally would with a regular steak. And then for me, I just, we would just sear it in a pan, baste it with some butter. and then, You put butter in the pan? Well, after you sear it, you got to baste it a little bit, so. Even with all that fat, like you still feel, you still need to like let her ride a little bit. It needs another cooking medium to get it, to get it to the point where you want it. Otherwise it's just gonna, it's just gonna burn on the outside. You want to do that after you spend 200 bucks for a piece of meat. (laughs) And then do you salt it as well or no? Yeah, just a little salt. And then when it's done cooking, you, you know, you, you cut it up and you add a little fancy salt or finishing salt, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Uh, Personally, I like Murray, Murray River salt. It's uh, from Australia. It's extremely delicious. It's not too, too expensive. You can find it on Amazon. I mentioned it earlier with the with the Wagyu. I, I think especially if you're serving it the way that uh, Chef just talked about, which is just like a light sear, a little salt. I think this is where Chardonnay really shines. You could even go sparkling with it too, especially if it like is a richer style of Chardonnay, like a Krug. Like I want a little bit of oak on my champagne. When we're talking about Wagyu, we're talking about a, a steak that's got a significant percentage of animal fat, right? Like it's, what do you, what is it? Like 60% or something? It's like super high. It's close to, it's probably in between, depending on the piece you get, it's in between 50 to 60% fat. And so when we're talking about like food and wine pairing 101, I think the things that you have to think about are like tannin and acid. If you've got a piece of steak and you've got the animal protein part of it, like that's what you want to bind with the tannin of your red wine. If you've got a a ton of fat, that's what you want the acid for. And so when that ratio is skewed the way that it is with fat surpassing the animal protein side of it, that's when you've got to skew your wine a little bit higher to go higher acidity, slightly lower tannin, because you don't have as much of that animal protein to bind with. And so that's kind of what led me in the direction of the Chardonnay that like still has tannin because it's been aged in oak, it has body, it has richness, but it still has a significant amount of acid to cut through all that fat without overwhelming it. Have you found that to be the case as well, Laura? I fully agree. With Wagyu in particular, I always found that Mm -hmm. the richer the steak, the more fat, the more I wanted 
white wine or like a really like a richer champagne. Yeah. Because I got to actually really appreciate the meat more. Yeah. Without as much of the heavier flavors of a red wine or the heavier tannin. Mm-hmm. And I really got to experience what that Wagyu is. And that's why I do kind of love these, like, you know, I go to these restaurants and, and they do Wagyu up front as like a, you know, kind of yeah. barely steered piece. And you really get to experience the beauty of that product usually in your glass at that time is champagne. So yeah, it seems to work. The other thing that I've done at home, if you, um, when you're steering the steaks, the, I go to my like local sushi restaurant and I ask for some sushi rice because mm-hmm. I'm not going to make it properly at home. So I get like a side of sushi rice and I'll do just like a little bit of Wagyu on top of some sushi rice, just as like a little, little snack. You guys are living it up. Wagyu hand rolls at home. Wow. That's right. What are you doing at home, Chef? Not Wagyu hand rolls, that's for sure. <laughs> what is the cut that you bring home? Like if you're going to grill in that two-month window when you can go outside in Chicago, what are the cuts that you're going to bring home? I mean, for me on my days off, it's like it's like you want to cook, but you don't want to spend a, a super long time cooking. So I, I always I always go with sirloins or New York strips. They're just easy for me. I think it's quick. It's you know a couple minutes on the grill and let it rest and you're good to go. Well, speaking of the grill, like what, like if you're not at a restaurant, you're at home, what do you think is the ultimate meat preparation? Is it grill? Is it pan fry? I'm not even talking about braise because I can't, I hate braise, but like sous vide, where, where is your stance on all that? Everything tastes better grilled or fried. So you really can't go wrong with the grill. Working over open flame. I'm terrified every time I have it open, even though I feel like kind of a badass in front of the grill. I'm always terrified. I'm like, I'm going to burn this thing for sure. Like the flames are definitely going to come up and like Mm -hmm. overtake this steak. So like, what are your, do you have any tips for grilling steak? I think the biggest mistake mostly every people make is not, is trying to grill on a cold grill. Like they go outside, they turn it on, all of a sudden they see flames and they're immediately throwing chicken or steak on the grill. And it's like, it's just going to stick and burn. So you need to like light your grill, close the lid, let that thing sit for like 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Wow. If you turn your oven on, how long does your oven take to heat up to 10? You're working with a thing outside that's ice cold, there's, there's wind blowing. you probably safe to bet would be good 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes. Is there a test to know like when it's ready to go? Like like a sizzle test or something? No. I mean, you can, I mean, after you've been doing it for a while, you kind of just know. But I mean, if you want like a, a fail safe, just, just buy a digital thermometer on Amazon for a meat and it's like foolproof, really. What should it read if you get the thermometer? I mean, it all depends on what you want. So like if you wanted medium rare, I would, I would hit it to 90, 95 degrees and you let it rest for 10 minutes. It's going to bump up. It's usually always going to come up 10 to 15 degrees after it rests. Mm. So whatever you pull it off, off the grill at, it's going to go up 10 to 15 degrees. So Oh, so you meant a digital thermometer for the actual meat, not for the actual grill. Yeah, for the actual meat. Got it. Okay. So I know like Chefs roll their eyes at like medium well, right? Medium, medium well is like, don't do it. Are you, where's your temperature? I like steak medium rare, but if I'm eating Wagyu, I like it more medium. Uh, mm-hmm. I think with Wagyu, there's just so, there's so much fat. You, it needs to be cooked a little bit more. But hey, I grew up on well done steaks. Both my parents like cooked the shit out of everything. It was like <laughs> shoe leather. And then when, you know, once I went to culinary school, I was like, oh, there's like, there's like another world out here with, with steak. It doesn't, it's actually good. Doesn't taste like a tire. What about like sous vide? Because I've I've definitely used that before. How was your experience with that? It was pretty good. Like I think it's you know yeah. it feels a little like you're boiling meat, which is odd. Yeah. But you know when you're talking of like especially if I've got like a bigger cut that I am a little bit more uncertain that like I'm going to get an even whatever. 
Like it's kind of nice, but I don't know from like a chef's point of view, you're like, save it for the pros. Like don't do it. I mean, Sumi's nice. I think it has its, its, its place. Uh, it's nice because you can drop it in and like kind of forget about it or do other things. So it allows you to be a little bit more productive. And then every time you pull it out, it's always perfect. But I mean, you still have to do certain things to it. You have to steer it when it comes out. So yeah. You know, we're such a tiny restaurant. We're short on space. We don't really sous vide a lot of stuff. It's and everything's pretty much a la minute. I mean, I've sous vide steaks at home. It's nice because you drop it in the water and you come back and an hour later, you just sear it in the pan and it's perfect medium rare or medium or however, whatever temp you put the, the circulator on. So, okay. I mean, it has its place for sure. Okay. So if you're the grocery store, right. And you mentioned sirloin's your favorite, like ribeye, New York, filet, like filet is nice and tender, but it's pretty basic. So sirloins are super flavorful, but a little bit more tougher than ribeyes. Ribeyes are super flavorful, a little bit more tender, more so tender like a filet, not as tougher as a, a sirloin would. What's your steak preference, Laura? I'm kind of a cheap date. I like skirt steak. Skirt steak's delicious. That is my go-to. But I've had some great, like, you know, in Tuscany in particular, like those big bistecas that are like, Ugh. that's an experience like worth at least, you know, once a year, every couple of years, like doing and yeah. and enjoying. But yeah, if I'm going to the store, I'm definitely buying like a skirt. I want to talk about this Rosa de Montecino a little bit. I, I, Chef, I know you're a cab guy, a red guy. I think this is a great wine, but I think this is a great example of a wine that like would be significantly improved with food. And I think for me, it's definitely going to be in the steak department. Like I'm a ribeye girl. Sign me up for a ribeye with a Rosa de Montecino like this. Cause it's got like it's interesting. It's it's a little deceiving. And I find these wines to be like incredibly deceiving in general, especially you know, like Sangiovese, which sort of on the periphery looks like it's and feels like it's going to be a light to medium bodied wine. But then you dig in there, you're like, oh, no, there's like a ton of richness and intensity and like tannin and structure. And I think this is a perfect example of that, right? Because you're like, oh, it doesn't look like super heavy. Like it definitely doesn't look like a cab. But then you taste it and you're like, oh, that's like a mouthful. Like there's like some serious tannin on there. There's some serious acid. There's like grapefruit. But it's definitely more on like the tart fruit side of things, which I really like. And I think if you're talking about steaks, especially if we're, you know, if we're leading more into like if you're adding in rosemary, if you're adding in garlic, if you're going in that direction, like this is such a great wine for that. Yeah, it's got, it's got a lot of body for sure. And it doesn't look like it's going to be heavy. You want the wine to like stand up to the actual meat, but you don't want it to overpower it because like there's so much intensity happening in your mouth already that you want something that's going to sort of like clean it all up. So you actually, as much as you want a full-bodied wine, like you don't want it to be too over the top because it's like it's a lot. Like you need something, you need a sip of something to like break it up a little bit, give you some palate break. And they're both opening beautifully. I do have a slight chill on the roasted Montecino. Do you, Laura? Or do you do? Yeah, it's, it's it was. Um cellar temp and it is opening up really nicely. I actually just pulled yeah. the cork. I think you could even decant you could decant this wine and it'll be even better in an hour or so. It's got this yeah. great herbaceousness too. It's got that oregano yeah. and that like rosemary. It just like that herbal tinge to it. Yeah. I always love that about Italian wines. Like it reminds me of the Italian herbs that you would find in the steaks and the sauces and everything. And to your point about like letting it open up, if you wanted to have this two nights in a row, you totally could. Yes. This is a great example of a wine that actually would maybe improve after a day of being open. Like I think it would like settle a little bit. I love that about Italian wines. It's like they can't be broken. Like they can legitimately stay like really, really delicious for like days. Just make sure you put a cork in it and put it in the fridge. Like don't just leave it out on your counter. You'll be very disappointed. For sure. It'd be a great buy the glass in a restaurant because like if you open a bottle yeah. to finish, like, at night and then it's open the next day, it's, it's even better. 
Thoughts and sauces, chimichurri, barbecue, au jus. You like the sauce? At home, no. I'm kind of I'm kind of just going and slice it and eat it. I do like chimichurri, though. Chimichurri is delicious. If you're having people over, whatever, chimichurri for sure. What if you're at like a steakhouse and like you have all the all those options at the bottom of the menu? Like, do you go for the option? I'm more of a side guy than than sauces, but sometimes I think you can make a whole meal out of like the classic steakhouse sides, like just like like hash browns and oh, definitely roasted roasted vegetables. It's like endless choices there too. Having worked at a steakhouse for five years, I I know to that to be absolutely <laughs> the fact that you can make a whole meal out of sides. <laughs> so many potato cakes with like spinach and broccoli and oh, mac and cheese. The mac and cheese was like that was like a truffled mac and cheese too. Would you do big steak tastings? At press, like where they would just have. Well, the interesting thing at press was like for forever, it was just Flannery beef, which we've talked about on the show before. And we're huge. I'm a huge fan of, which is a, a California purveyor. They do use some Midwestern stuff for other sections of meat that they sell. But like their mainstay is the California Holstein cattle, which is male dairy cattle. And the marbleization ratio is a little bit different and it's more like pinpricked instead of layered. And so that meat was really interesting because it was like, it was rain fed grass finished. So it didn't have a super gamey feel and it was only about 18 days dry aged. To me, it was like the perfect beef. And so that's all we were using. So we got to know Flannery pretty intimately. What about you, Laura? Did they they do like tastings? We would, we would have, you know, we were looking to like change up the menu and they would bring in you know, a variety of like dry age stuff and we would grill them up all the same and you'd get to kind of really experience like what is the difference between, you know, the aging and the types. And it was amazing. It was, it was very eye-opening, but I can remember those dinner services being difficult <laughs> after you've had like <laughs> so full <laughs> and all whole meat tasting and at like at like two o'clock and then you're like okay and I gotta like there's not enough espresso <laughs> <laughs> to, like, to push you through dinner service it's like after Thanksgiving dinner yeah exactly 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 We've got some questions from the audience. I mentioned that we wanted to highlight some of the city things from our chefs. So, Chef, any favorite local spots in Chicago that you love? So my favorite restaurant in Chicago is probably Mama Delia. It's in Wickapock. It's Spanish tapas and paella. Yum. They always got a great vibe, play great music. Food's always great. I got a good wine list. What about pizza? Pizza. So my favorite place was a place called Bebu, but it's closed now. Kind of the pandemic kind of crushed them. Okay. But if you want like New York style, probably Dope Rose is probably my favorite, my favorite spot in the city. Side question. This is not from the audience, but it just reminded me. Did you watch The Bear? I have to ask. I have watched The Bear. Look at him take a sip of his wine. He's like, I've watched it. Was it PTSD or like, this is not real? No, I stopped watching after the third episode. Have you seen the menu? I actually saw the menu uh, two weeks ago. So I thought it was super stupid before I saw it. Then it grew on me as I started watching it. I got a good laugh at the at the ending. Ending. I thought the ending was very very clever. Yeah. No. No. no well. Spoiler alert. So you don't. You're not serving a s'more anytime soon, or a take <laughs> on a s'more. <laughs> no s'mores and no desserts on the table. I loved the sommelier. I loved the way he like you know it tastes like desperation. I thought the movie was yeah. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. It, it hit on so many nerves for me of like the industry and the culture around all this stuff. I I loved it. We have a question about, I literally can't wait for your response on this. Does Impossible or Beyond Meat work the same with wine? Have you tried it? I have tried it. I remember the the first time I tried it, it was at a food hall. We were at some event 
and they were there doing the impossible stuff. And I remember eating it and I was like, holy shit, this tastes like the hamburgers we used to yeah. get in high school. Yeah. But, <laughs> That's exactly yeah, what they taste no, like. 100%. <laughs> good or bad. <laughs> I mean, I think it's good because they've replicated that flavor. Like it, it tastes like beef for sure. But does it work with wine? Have you tried it, Laura? It's not my favorite product to use like at home in the kitchen, but mm-hmm. it is an interesting alternative. Yeah. I think you just have to kind of dial the wine back a little bit. Like if you were thinking cab, like maybe you go for a Pinot Noir or something a little bit lighter because it doesn't like pack the punch. But yeah, I think it's a great, you know, if you're looking for an alternative, I think you have to just, you have to, you have to temper your expectations. <laughs> like, Yes. Last question. What is the best thing to make with leftover steak? Steak and cheese sandwich. Slice it thin. Melt some cheese on it. All right. Or steak and eggs, maybe. Throw it in your omelet. Laura, you? You heat up a tortilla called a taco. Yeah, there you go. And then you can throw a chimichurri in there. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I had prime rib left over from the holidays. I did this huge mm. prime rib and ended up Me with a too. ton. I like cut it really, really like small and then kind of cornstarch and like fried it up and did this like Asian kind of stir fry thing with it. That was really good. I always have the ingredients for fried rice. I always, I make rice like mm-hmm. a couple times a week. Fried rice is a good one too. Yeah. Just, you know, little egg, little soy, whatever else you got in your fridge. Little Wagyu hand rolls too. Like hand roll, yeah. You know, y'all, this has been so much fun. I love talking about meat, but it's making me real hungry. So uh, if you haven't joined the Wine Access Unfiltered Wine Club already, now is your chance to do so. We're having so much fun picking out these amazing wines, sharing them on the podcast with our guests. Our guests love them as much as we do. At least that's what they're telling us. So if you haven't done that, go ahead in the description, click sign up and do your thing. Uh, Once again, if you haven't reviewed this podcast and liked it and subscribed and done all the things that we've asked you to do, we really encourage you to do that. It's so helpful. And in fact, we'll cheers you from afar just for doing it. So thanks for, thanks in advance for that. Chef, this has been so amazing. I know you got to get to service. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure seeing you guys and chatting and talking about beef and wag your hand rolls. So that's right. <laughs> um, you can find Chef Troy George at his restaurant, Temperus, in Chicago. Highly recommend. Make sure you got it on your bucket list if you are heading out there. Of course, make your reservations in advance because it's not a super easy reservation to get. Laura, so good to have you on the podcast finally. Yes. Thank you for having me on and sharing these great wines. And yeah, I look forward to making some steak very, very soon. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, this is the Wine Access and Filter podcast. I'm your host, Amanda McCrossin, with Laura Coffer, who not only co-hosted, but also produced this episode. So thank you, Laura, for that. We'll see you all next time. Cheers. Cheers.